Might we pray together? Our Father, uh, we who have had our eyes open to see grace, we are a people who see things differently now than we did at one point in our lives. We are a people who, who value things differently than we used to. We are people whose priorities are different and schedules have changed, all because we now see that this three score and ten is nothing but preparation for an eternity. It is filled with joys and excitements. It's filled with pleasures, none of which can compare to that which awaits the people who have placed their whole hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we pray, O oh God, that as we gather to begin this new year, that we'll be reminded that our home is not here, that we are aliens here and citizens there, that in one strange sense we belong to two countries, one that is temporary and fleeting and passing, the other which is permanent and eternal and everlasting, full of felicity and bliss. And so, O oh God, as we gather each Sunday morning, remind us, remind us of eternity. And then, Father, we do thank you for the blessings of the past days. We do thank you for the reports of Carol Ostell. We're delighted to hear, O oh God, that you have wrought such great things in her life. For others in this room, perhaps your providences haven't been interpreted as so kind. And we pray for them as well. And pray that as they gather with your people this morning around your word, that they might sense a great deal of hope, as well as those whose circumstances are more pleasant to experience. Father, we do thank you that this country was not blighted with any kind of millennium bug. We're grateful for your tender mercies. We're grateful that there was no terrorist attack. We don't take those things for granted. And we thank you for all of the, the kindnesses you've shown our land. Might this land's heart be turned to the God who has given us such precious freedoms. And now, O oh God, it is our privilege to, to give. It is the portion of our service where we can participate and we can express things which in other cases we can't express. Our money, O oh God, is who we are. It represents all of our efforts. And so we give it away to the King of Kings gladly. And we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Before the ushers come to you, I want to ask you to do something a little different, which is turn in your hymnal. I want you to open your Bibles to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthian church. And as you're finding that, I need to explain something briefly. And if, if you're not aware, Gracie Van has what we call a rotating session. That is, the elders of our church serve for three years, and then after that three-year period, they, they are rotated off for a year, 
and then they can come back to the position of elder if you, the congregation, nominate and elect them. In uh, early December, we did call a congregational meeting, and you did elect, but in essence restore two men to the, um, to the office of elder. And I wanted to make sure that you understood that, pray over them as we reinstall them in that office. Tom Jordan and Floyd Harvey, would you come up here? Um, before I pray, I just want you to know that in the providence of God, way back in, in 1990, right before Gracie Van started, the two men, the two laymen that God saw fit to use to bring this church into being are these two. And so they're very dear and special to me. But I wanted to pray, commit them to God's service, and let you know that these two men have now resumed their function as elder. Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, what, what providences you worked in the life of Floyd and Tom to, bring, to, to put in their hearts a desire to see a church planted. And I thank you that you did. I thank you that you brought them into my life to challenge me in this way. And I pray that you will use them continually, as you have done in the past, to steer this church in a direction that will please you. Father, with both of their schedules that are so packed with other things, make for them the kind of time that they will need so that their families will not suffer as they devote themselves to exercising this gift of leadership that is within them both so that Grace Evan can move on in her efforts to reach an unchurched world through maturing believers. We commit them to you, O oh God, and I thank you for the insight that you have given this congregation to place two men such as these in leadership positions in our church. We commit them to you and do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Welcome back. As some of you know, I, I've been off this week, and so one of, uh, one of the things that I did while away, I changed, I changed text on you. And um, the one that is printed in the bulletin is not the text that I'm going to use, and it's not Carla's fault. It's my fault. So um, uh, let me begin reading uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Did I, did I not mention the chapter? I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to begin reading at verse 17. This is a, this is a rich passage of Scripture. Follow as I read it. At verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. You know, ladies and gentlemen, there's all kinds of ways that you can classify servants. I, I guess the broadest classification is uh, the good ones and the bad ones. There are good sermons and there are bad sermons, and I hope the ones that you have heard here are more often good than they are bad. But uh, you can classify them as expositional. Uh, there are topical sermons. There are exegetical sermons. There are sermons that uh, are drawn from uh, primarily historical narratives. Other sermons taken from, from passages that are distinctly didactic. There are all kinds of different ways to, to, to handle a text. Um, my sermon this morning, I'm, I'm afraid, will strike some of you as being awfully academic, um, which, which for some of you will be a real downer. But, um, but let me try and defend my approach by, um, by, by trying to explain to you what it is that I'm trying to do, and maybe, maybe that'll help you stay awake. Um, I, I'd love to think that all of you remember uh, just exactly where we are in this, this series that we started back in the fall. But if you're like me, you're having trouble remembering what happened on Christmas Day. Um, so we're, we're, I, I don't believe that you're remembering exactly where we are. So um, what, what, what happened in the fall is tied to what we want to do now. And let me, let me explain why. You may recall that back in September, we started a, a, a series on the prodigal son. And that series was the result of a failure. Mine. A failure to forgive. And so, um, uh, being the physician of my own soul, I decided... I knew that God will not allow me to remain in a posture of anger and bitterness. And so what I thought I would do is I would become an expert on the parable of the prodigal son, thinking that the parable of the prodigal son is this wonderful illustration of forgiveness, and I could learn great things from it, and thus uh, arrive at the biblically demanded position of, um, of forgiveness. Well, I did become an expert on the prodigal son, I think you'll agree. Um, but I discovered that it really is not a parable about forgiveness, although there is a wonderful story of forgiveness in it. It's really not a parable of forgiveness. It's a parable about grace. And so we spent all the fall taking a look at this, this, this outstanding illustration and picture of the God of all grace. So, having completed that look at the parable on December the 12th, which is many months ago, um, on December the 12th, I opened this subject that originally spawned the whole thing, the subject of forgiveness. And, I, and it was only brief, it was the day of communion, and those sermons have to be shorter than they're normal. And, and basically what I said there to you that day was really only two things. First of all, that the, that the consummate forgiver is God. 
That, that the one who is known for his forgiveness is him, not us. And then I went on to draw a distinction, you may recall, between a horizontal forgiveness and, um, and a vertical forgiveness. You know, the horizontal stuff um, that, that you and I must exercise amongst ourselves, and then the vertical forgiveness that, that God has displayed in Christ. And so, you know, before you get to the subject of the horizontal you must have a, a working knowledge of the vertical. And that's what I want to do today. I want to explain, as best I know how, this, this glorious gospel that is rooted in, in, in this everlasting forgiveness and grace of God, which even Christians have a difficult time understanding, ladies and gentlemen. But, but you know, we... we um, We've only had this gospel for 2,000 years, which is, uh, which is a pretty short time for a fallen race to, to assimilate the, 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 the reality of the inexhaustible mercy and, and forgiveness of God. And as it turns out, ladies and gentlemen, this is not only good news, this is far better news than any of us have ever dreamed. And what I want to do, I want to do my darndest today to try and, and explain as simply and as fully as I know how this gospel of grace which provides that vertical forgiveness that whether you know it or not is our primary need. I want to couch it in a question. I, I want to frame my discussion in a question. The question is simply this. How can I, a guilty sinner, hope to ever be forgiven in the presence of a perfectly holy God? Okay? How can I expect, as, as the sinner that I am, how can I expect to be acceptable, to be forgiven in the presence of a, of a holy Pure God. Now, gang, uh, um, let me say again that I also want to be a better forgiver, you know, horizontally, you know, out there in the traffic. Uh, you know, one of my biggest fears as a pastor is being ugly in the car one day, only to pull alongside of the car and figure out it's one of you. Oh, that would be awful. Um, I, I want to get better at this. Um, but there's a lot of other people that need to be forgiven, aren't there? But guys, for, for those of us whose consciences have been awakened by the Holy Spirit, we understand that our primary concern is really not horizontal forgiveness. It's not how well I forgive my wife or she forgives me. The primary issue is this vertical forgiveness. We must start there. How does a perfectly holy God forgive me? That's what I want to do this morning. Stay with me. I want to answer that question under four headings. First of all, I think you know that this book says a whole lot about God. Pretty simple. Uh, the, the primary character in this book is God. It says a lot about him. 
It says, for instance, that he is a God of love. Everybody knows that, and if you don't know that, I'd simply go check bumper stickers. It's all over people's cars that God loves, and he does, and this book teaches it uh, and says it twice, twice. says it uh, in the same chapter of Scripture, 1 John 4, verse 8 and verse 16. But that's enough for me. It ought to be enough for you. It does say it twice. God is love. We all know that, or at least we seem to know that. But there is something else that this book tells us about this God that we don't know quite as well. And I might point out, it is said far more frequently than God is love. I would say 50 times more. Uh, it says that this God who is love, that we know that part, it also states that God is holy. And that's a biblical word that simply means he doesn't have any sin to his credit. He's perfectly sinless. This God who is love is sinlessly perfect, or is holy. One statement in the book of Habakkuk says this, his eyes are too holy to even look upon iniquity. Because of who he is, he cannot stand sin in his presence. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if that's true, Houston... We have a problem. Do you see the problem yet? Because when you go on to figure out what this book has to say about man, I want you to know it's not particularly flattering. It doesn't flatter us, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, it says that all of us are sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You and you and you and him and him back there. All of us. Now, gang, you got it yet? Here's the problem. If God can't stand sin in his presence, and I'm a sinner, how am I ever going to stand in his presence? You know, ladies and gentlemen, this book also says that all those things that we're so proud of, those things that we really thought would demonstrate what wonderful people that we are, those things that would really pave the way right into the presence of God because of, you know, helping the little old ladies across the street and, and being a member of the Kiwanis Club and, and donating time to the, uh, the, the uh, Christmas tree pickup uh, drive, all those things that we thought would really impress heaven didn't. In fact, there's this nasty little term that the Bible uses to describe all those. You know what the term is? Filthy rags. And you don't even want to know what that means. All those things that we thought would impress heaven, the Bible calls filthy rags. John Bunyan, the guy that wrote Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan once said, the best prayer that I ever prayed had enough sin in it to damn the world. <laughs> oh my, me at my best has enough sin in it to damn the world. You know, um, gang, if there's anything that the Bible requires in terms of preparation to receive the gospel, it is a consciousness of our sinfulness. You know, um, the only way you get that sense of sinfulness, ladies and gentlemen, 
is when you begin to examine yourself in the blinding light of God's holiness. And, and when sin is stripped of all of its disguises and it's seen in all of its nakedness, you know what it is? It is our attempt to dethrone God and to enthrone self. And folks, that ain't any way to gain acceptance with God. I can tell you this. We're the only religion that teaches that stuff. The other world religions, ladies and gentlemen, are not going to call you a sinner. In fact, I, I found this quote that I, I just could not pass up. Uh, it came from a, the man who was the founder of the Ramakrishna Mission. He's a Hindu uh, reformer. Um, his last name is Vivekananda. And, and this is just a brief little quote from, from this Hindu reformer. He says, The Hindu refuses to call you sinners. Ye are the children of God, the sharers of immortal bliss, holy and perfect beings. Ye divinities on earth, sinners? It is a sin to call a man a sinner. It is a standing libel on human nature. And then he goes on to say, Silly fools tell you you are sinners. You are all God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, one of us is right, but not both of us. Either you are listening to a silly fool. <laughs> Some of you have concluded that before. Either you are listening to a silly fool. Or you are listening to a truth that grows frequently out of this book, which simply states all of sin. And because you have, there is no hope for any kind, any sort of self-salvation. Now, have you got the dilemma yet? Have you got it? Here it is. It's simple. If I'm a sinner, which I think this book tells me, <clears throat> and God can't stand sin in his presence, how am I ever going to get there? And um, one other part, if he is love, how is he going to demonstrate love to people who don't deserve love? How? How, you ask? In Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, the dominant theme of this book is the cross of Jesus Christ. The foundation of this entire message from Genesis to Revelation. Not from Matthew, but from Genesis. The foundation of this whole book is Christ crucified. Have you ever, have you ever thought about this? Um, what is the one unmistakable, undeniable, enduring symbol of Christianity? Pretty simple. The cross. Um, 
why did the early church choose a cross as its symbol? They, they had a whole lot of good options. They could have used a, um, a crib, which would have symbolized his incarnation. They could have used a, um, uh, a workbench, a carpenter's workbench, to, to symbolize the dignity of, of human labor. They could have used a, a, um, a boat, you know, which um, that Jesus used often to teach from, you know, on the Sea of Galilee. It could be a symbol of his teaching ministry. Uh, could have used a tomb, you know, and, and uh, to, to, to represent the resurrection. Or maybe even a throne. We could have used a throne that would have signified his, uh, his sovereignty. Or maybe even a dove that would symbolize the Holy Spirit. But none of that was chosen, ladies and gentlemen. It was a cross. Because, ladies and gentlemen, Christ's death is the central issue in, in this whole thing called Christianity and in this book. Christianity is faith in Christ crucified. You know, we, we make a lot of to-do over Christmas. I hope your family rooms weren't as obscene as mine with all of that stuff under that tree. I want you to know the youngs are absolutely decadent. But we make a lot of to-do about the birth that simply points towards a cross. We make a lot of to-do on Easter Sunday over resurrection. Ladies and gentlemen, it is resurrection from what? The holiest of days, ladies and gentlemen, for us is Good Friday. That's our day. That's when God accomplished. That's when God solved this dilemma. Remember the dilemma now. God can't stand sin in his presence, and I'm a sinner. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, I, I use this often. You've heard me do this before, but imagine, imagine I sin three times a day. <laughs> I want you to know, if I only sin three times in a day, that would be a very good day. That's my life. Three times in a day. Thousand a year. I'm 39 years old. That means I've got 39,000 sins. And God can't stand sin in his presence. And I've got 39,000 of them. Here's the dilemma. And I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, the dilemma was solved in Christ. And let me explain it as best I know how. What you see taking place on a cross is that God pours out his wrath against my sin on him and thus demonstrates his inflexible hatred towards sin and thus his holiness. But he pours out his wrath on him and not me which demonstrates his everlasting love for sinners. You know, gang, 
Whenever the language of forgiveness is found in the New Testament, the stress is always found on what God has done, His initiative. Nowhere, ladies and gentlemen, please believe me, nowhere does this book ever portray, ever describe a route, a path, anything like that, such that sinners can work their way and snake themselves acceptably into the presence of God. But may I add, on the other hand, nowhere in this book is God ever depicted as being reluctant to forgive sinners on the basis of what his son has accomplished on a cross. Folks, I, I, I want to try it and again state it as simply as I know how. Here it is. This is, this is the best I can do. Jesus Christ dies on a cross, pays for my sin, purchases a place in heaven for me, and he turns and offers me that spot in heaven as a gift. Now, I want you to turn back with me to our text this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that when it comes to theological dialogue, this is one of the richest and profoundest pieces of scripture you're going to find within the covers of this book. But it is not hard. And I'm hoping that it will be so much more understandable now that I've added some hopefully explanatory comments. But this is not difficult. Read it with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, oh, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he, that is God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see it, ladies and gentlemen? Do you see how God solved his dilemma? Do you see the grounds on which he freely extends forgiveness to sinners? It is Christ crucified. 
we Christians are supposed to be people who glory in a substitutionary, sin-bearing Savior who, because he died in our place, can offer us the gift of eternal life to all who embrace this Christ. Now, I use the word embrace. That's not the word that the New Testament uses. The New Testament uses the word faith. A word or two about faith and I'm almost finished. Faith, ladies and gentlemen, is everything... Faith is the opposite of everything meritorious. If you want to look at your baptism, if you want to look at your confirmation class, if you want to look at your giving, if you want to look at your teaching, if you want to look at your loyalty to your wife, whatever is meritorious, faith is the opposite of that. Faith is, is the opposite of everything legalistic. I obey the Ten Commandments, that's not good. Faith, ladies and gentlemen, is a wholehearted reliance, an abandonment of myself to Christ alone and what he did for me at Calvary. No work, no device, no method, no strategy, no plan can ever earn anything from our Heavenly Father. He delights to give away his gifts free. And the opposite of trying to earn your way is to embrace the Savior by faith. Now that, I say, ladies and gentlemen, is glorious news, far better news than any of us had ever imagined. Now here's the bad news. <laughs> when it comes to forgiving each other, we are being asked to forgive in the way that he has first forgiven us. God's forgiveness to us is now become a pattern for us by which you and I are being asked to distribute forgiveness. How was Christmas this year? Did you have any family squabbles around the tree, huh? Somebody wouldn't show up because, you know, well, you know, we got this going on in our family and they got that going on in our family. Oh boy, you know, and how'd you and your wife get along, huh? Somebody across the block shoot a bottle rocket through your front door? Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand what we are being asked to do? You like being forgiven, do you? Oh, yes, we do. The greatest, the most prized possession of the believer is being forgiven. Do you like that? Then, my friends, what we are being now asked to do is go forgive in a similar way to, what, to how we have been forgiven. 
I didn't say forgiveness was fair. I didn't say it was easy. I didn't say it was simple. I simply said it was expected. Did you, I, I bet you read the same story I did. I mean, it's, I've seen it in news magazines from time to time. The, um, the Japanese soldier whose last name was Yokoi, Shochi Yokoi. He was the guy over on the island of Guam who, (laughs) poor guy, uh, when he saw the tides of the war turning, he decided to hole up in a cave. And he was scared to death, and if he was discovered, he'd be executed for his war crimes. And so he stayed in that cave 28 years. (laughs) And even when he saw that the war was over, he was afraid to come out because if he were captured, he thought they'd drag him into town and execute him. He lived for 28 years, coming out only at night. To, uh, he lived on frogs, snails, rats, mangoes, and nuts. Not bad. And when he was discovered by a couple of hunters, they finally talked him into coming into town, assuring him that he wouldn't be punished. Here is a man that thought he was going to be punished when his crimes were already punished in the Japanese Emperor Tojo and the rest of the Japanese warlords that started that nasty thing. Forgiveness available, never appropriated. Are you sitting here today in the midst of your own sin? Gang, there's forgiveness. And if you lay hold of it, I then need to tell you, we now go out and forgive the way we've been forgiven. For a Christian to hold a grudge is to undercut this message of grace that we also cherish. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we are a people who glory in forgiveness, a gospel that, that emanates from this inexhaustible spring of mercy and grace. And Father, we have not yet comprehended it all. 2,000 years later, we still haven't quite assimilated how wonderful is this message. But we're working on it, Father. Make us people who have been set free from fear, and dread by grace. And then, Father, our commitment to you is we're going to do our darndest as the Holy Spirit empowers us. We will, because of Christ's sake,
forgive. Help us get there. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. We close with a twofold invitation to you. If, um, if you're still wondering about what it means to be related to the Father by faith, we want to talk to you and do our best to answer your questions. We don't think this is the best place to do it in the front of the room. So as people are leaving, just get a hold of me and we'll, we'll set it up. I, I want to once again say, if you visited with us this morning, we would love to give you a gift something to remember us by it would also give us give you an opportunity to ask any questions you'd like to ask it's just right there there's some refreshments and you can find out more about what grace is if the lord has led you to gracie van and you've completed all that new member stuff and you think this is the place he wants you it's you that we like to invite to the front won't you stand with me as richard leads us in this closing course